Are you feeling humble this morning? No. <laughs> Correct answer. Well, it, I, I wonder, could you just turn to your neighbor and share your greatest feat of humility with them? <laughs> no, it's a joke. It's a joke. You don't, you don't need to do it. Um, I suppose because the, 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 it's, it's the classic thing. The moment that you feel like you're feeling humble is the moment that you tend to get humbled a little more. Um, yeah, I, I, I wonder, I'm thinking about what Kim was sharing last week um, from, the, from the first part of, of chapter 4, so the first 12 verses of chapter 4 of James, um, and I'm, I'm doing the, the back end, so 13 to 17 of chapter 4 to this morning. But do you find that humility is something that's most well represented in your own heart or um, in the way that you portray it to others? So if you were feeling humble, is that something that you measure in yourself based on your own heart? Or is it something that you're more, more concerned about how you appear to other people? So how you choose to, I suppose, live out that humility. And I, I think, this, I think both, both are true for me. I, I feel most honestly humble when I feel, feel it in my, in my insides, when I know it in my knower. But, but probably more of my time than it should be is taken up by making sure that other people can also see that I'm humble, which in itself is sort of like an, an oxymoron, right? A contradiction in terms. Does our desire to be submitted to God, and in, a, in that sense to be humble, does that extend to preferring others over ourselves as well as just admitting that God is bigger than us? So humility in the sense of, you know, yeah, God's a, a big big dude he can do things that we can't do in some ways that's very easy to do but does our humility extend to preferring others just like the apostle paul talks about in the early church do we um in humility value others above ourselves do we interact with them in a way that tells that story um and as with much of of this letter that was a line by the way um in humility, do we value others above ourselves from the, the first half of that, um, of, of the chapter, from what Kim was speaking on last week? These are really simple things. They're not, I think Kim said last week, it's not difficult. Um, and, and you always get into kind of semantics, into kind of wording problems there, because it, it is hard, but it's not complex. It's not, it's not rocket science, although I've been told that's fairly simple. Um, I don't believe it. But it's, it's, not, it's not really complicated, it's just hard. Um, this is the kind of challenge that keeps on giving, right? You, you think you've nailed it and then you have to go again. So in that spirit, let's, let's read this week's passage. It's, it's very short. So we're on um, page 1184, I guess, this week. Yeah. Um, and we'll read it from, I'll read it from the same Bible as you and then. Make sure we get it right. So, um, chapter 4, starting at verse 13, going through to the end of the chapter. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, You ought to say, 
If it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I, I wonder what the most presumptuous thing you have ever done is. This time's for real. Turn to a neighbor and share with them what the most presumptuous thing you have ever done is. If you're not sure what that means, talk about that with your neighbor. What's the most presumptuous thing you've ever done? There's enough chat that clearly some people have been very presumptuous and others are struggling for stories. I, um, I have been together with Abby, who is my wife. She's upstairs in the kids' groups. I've been together with Abby for 18 years um, this year, which is half of my life. Um, and when we were dating, we started dating as, as kids. Well, I was 18, so I was a fully grown adult. Um, and we, we had a couple of rocky patches. And one thing, I just never, never thought it was, I didn't, know, I didn't know how to handle it, but at one point I tried to break up with Abby and she just wouldn't say yes. <laughs> and my presumptuousness was that I would, she was living in Bristol, I was living in the middle of nowhere near Birmingham at the time, was that I would go and we'd, you know, I'd, I'd break up and that would solve the problem whatever the problem was at the time, and then we'd move on and everything would be absolutely fine. My presumptuousness was that that would be, I would be fully in command of that situation, and I just, I'd never come across the idea that she could say no to that. That, you know, you can say no to lots of things, but surely that's just gonna, um, and I'm not sure if that's the most presumptuous thing I've ever done, but it's certainly ranked up there in a sort of a, just, I, had, I was reeling. I did not know what, I was coming home on the train, kind of playing things back in my head, and I just couldn't quite work out how I'd got to where I'd got to. I'd gone with a really clear plan, absolutely sure of how things were going to end, and come back in a completely different situation um, to what I was assuming and hoping I would. If you know Abby, you know that that's not a huge surprise, um, but it was to me at the time. There's something about presumptuousness that is the opposite of humility, right? This is a kind of arrogance that says, I deserve this, or I know exactly what to do in this situation, or ultimately, I'm better than you. It's not that you can never legitimately say, I deserve this, or you can't ever know what the right thing to do is in a particular situation. But the key here is that when there's someone who knows better present, it's very presumptuous to presume that you know best. And for each Christian here this morning, there is always someone present who knows better. Anyone know the answer? Yeah, it's God. The Sunday school answer of Jesus is very often the right answer. This little section um, of, of this chapter is directed at the traveling merchant class of people. Um, so you can see, um, it, it says now, listen, you who say, and the you who say, 
that, that James is referring to are this kind of traveling merchant class of people. They're wealthy, they do business, uh, and they make decisions based on hard facts, business facts, um, and they're all about the bottom line. And when it comes down to it, they're all about themselves, or their business, over others. This is the picture that James is painting for us of the people that he is addressing here. It's not a perfect parallel to today because, um, you know, today's society is very different. Uh, it's easy to travel. There's lots of ways to get around. And so to be a traveling merchant class would look very different today. Um, but also, there are a whole lot more folks doing business today than there were then. There are lots of individual farmers providing the actual building blocks of life that we need, um, doing that as their job than we have today. We have a small number of farmers creating an enormous amount of food for um, a, a large group of people, which releases us to do lots of other things. So, so who are these people today? And I can't think of a really good modern-day version of this role. It, it, whenever I try, it just becomes too narrow and allows any of us to kind of get ourselves off the hook um, because we're not in that bracket. So you could say it's the wealthy entrepreneur who starts and stops things um, on their own whim, totally secure in their bank balance, knowing that it's fine. You, you could say that it's uh, like a stocks trader or a banker, um, you know, the masters of their own destiny and the destiny of our money. But equally, you could say it was a small business owner making a grand sort of five to ten year plan or a doctor or a lawyer or an architect or insert profession here who starts down a long-term training path that looks pretty profitable and they're looking to do what's best for them. It could very well actually be a vicar or a traveling preacher picking the talks or the church activities that on paper will reflect best on them, will give good returns, and will look good on social media. I guess what I'm saying is that we need to know who this passage is aimed at, but we need to make sure that that doesn't allow us to dodge the bullet ourselves, because it is aimed at us, even if we feel like it's not specifically aimed at us. It's also clear that this is aimed at Christians. So it's not just the rich folks. Um, uh, next week we'll read from the start of chapter 5, and that is addressing specifically people who don't have faith. But this is, this is holding the people being addressed in this passage to the ideals of a Christian faith. So in that sense, it really is for us. This could definitely describe me, at least. So if we look at verse 13, the now listen verse, James is not referencing a specific event here. He's not retelling a story about a person who said, now, today we will do this or that. He's, he's using the phrase this or that to effectively draw out the underlying attitude that he's trying to put his finger on in this group of people. Um, and that is... Trying to make money is wrong, right? That's the point that James is making here. No, 
No, that's not exactly what's happening here. It's not that business or profit in themselves are a bad thing or being engaged in business is wrong, but rather the attitude taken on the way to getting there. That is what James is picking at. Does that attitude give reference to God? And then we hit verse 14. The reason that we're given that will help us to know why this lack of reference to God is not wise is this. You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. Now, hands up, who here has a pretty good idea what will happen tomorrow? Yeah, it's, it's okay. I'm putting, I can't put my hand up, but I have a pretty good idea. I'm, I'm fairly confident of what will happen tomorrow. This is a really hard teaching for us to accept, I think, because um, even if we're nodding our heads along thinking, yes, yes, we don't know everything, we should remember our frail humanity. We are nothing compared to the omniscience of God. How many of us really live that way? However much we admit that intellectually, that's the way we should be. How many of us really live that? It often, um, it often takes me a while to work out, but I'm pretty confident most days what I'll be doing the next day. If you ask me at any given moment, I'll need to have a look at my diary, but I could tell you. And, and whether it's um, a combo of my diary or my weather app or my to-do lists or my wish list, I'm normally pretty set on what is going to happen, not just tomorrow, but this week, next week, and for about six months at least. We are so conditioned to live as masters of our own destinies, of the makers of our own magic, to be in control, that we, even Christians, even we, forget that we are missed, as it says in this verse here, in verse 16. We use words reminiscent of Psalm 103 on Ash Wednesday, a week, and a, a week and a half ago. When we said, or I said, before I gave you chemical burns, apologies for that again. Um, remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Even more powerfully, during the committal of a funeral service, um, uh, that's the bit where you lower the coffin into the ground or you draw the curtains before the coffin goes away to be cremated. The minister says the words, we are but dust. The contrast between us and God is profound at that moment because it's a stark reminder that however grand our plans are, however much we have or haven't achieved at that point, we're dead. We are but dust. And all that's left is an empty shell of a body that will be will become dust. Our plans become completely useless. Verse 15 then. Instead you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Now, I think this is at the time, this was quite a common phrase. It was a sort of a, that's, that's why um, it's being referenced here. So if it's the Lord's will, um, we'll do this or that. 
Actually, it wasn't exactly worded the way James has worded it here. But I think this is quite a common phrase or common sentiment these days anyway, even if you're not a Christian. If you think about, oh, God knows. It just, it pops into our language. But what's referenced here in this verse is not just a generic God or a higher being or something bigger than ourselves. James has taken um, this phrase as it was used and inserted the word Lord. Not the Lord meaning the name of God, I am who I am, but Lord in the sense of the King, Jesus, the one who is Lord over your life. This sort of sentiment existed at the time of writing, but James writes it differently. Um, As Douglas Moo says, you remember Douglas Moo? He says that James takes this common expression of general religious sentiment and he baptizes it. He turns it to God's purposes. It's not fatalism of, well, if the Lord wills it. It's not giving things over and um, giving up your responsibility. It's an active co-laboring with God towards the future. It's about asking God for the answer to your situation, not coming up with it yourself. Uh, I don't know, has, has anyone ever had a time when they've really needed to discern what God's will was for their life? Yeah? When, um, when Abby and I were released from, from Bristol Diocese, um, it was a bit of a surprise, um, but not a good one. And um, we didn't know what to do. There was the possibility of, um, I'd, I'd already done my training, basically. So there was a possibility of just take, taking the degree, um, but saying no to ordination and continuing to work where, where we were, where I'd been working through the ordination track. Um, the church we're at were very, very supportive and were, would, would have been happy to keep us. Um, but we just didn't, we didn't know what God had for us. So we fasted and we prayed and we waited on God, and we made some really um, good, sensible decisions, but mostly we gave it over to God. And in this season of Lent, when lots of people will be giving things up or perhaps fasting through the, through the week, have you ever fasted to seek the will of God? Perhaps if you have a big thing on the horizon or even a small one, it's something you could try doing. It's exerting yourself towards God's will and trying to discern what he has for you rather than just cracking on. Has anyone ever heard of the five CSs? If you've ever done Alpha, you will have come across them, but you might not remember them. So I don't know if Nicky Gumbel came up with these himself. Um, he's very good at that sort of thing, so it wouldn't surprise me, but he may have kind of, colla- kind of collected them from, from around the place. But this is um, the, the classic way that we discern things. We, um, we look first, so the, the, one, the first CS is commanding scripture. We look to the Bible and see what the Bible has to say about our situation. The second is a compelling spirit. Maybe the Holy Spirit is moving us towards something, placing a desire in our heart or, or making it clear to us in some other way. We use our common sense. So we've got brains. It's okay to use our thoughts and wills to decide what the future should hold. 
Um, but you realize that commanding scripture and compelling spirit have come before common sense there. And sometimes they contradict it. Then there's the council of the saints. That's you lot. All your brothers and sisters in Christ. Or at least the wise ones. You go to them and you ask them, well, what do you think? Does this sound right? And then circumstantial signs. Sometimes God, the, the illustration given in Alpha is God using an advert on the side of a bus um, to answer a prayer um, that was just peculiarly relevant. It wasn't the message of the advert, but it happened to be a word that was in the advert on the side of a bus. God can use uh, anything to speak to us. But if we don't ask the question, we don't give him the chance to answer. So, if God wills it, it's not just fatalism, but it's actively co-laboring towards the future with God. And then second last verse, guys. Verse 16. As it is, you boast and brag... All such boasting is evil. It doesn't feel like a complicated verse, but it helps us to understand what's so wrong about the apparently totally innocuous pursuit of trying to make a bit of money and trying to make good plans and um, trying to be secure. It's, it's not those things that have the inherent problem, but it's the pride in our own doing of it, that is the problem. And remember last week, Kim said, pride reminded us that it's the beginning of, of all sin. C.S. Lewis says that pride is the beginning of all sin. And more importantly, the Bible tells us that pride is the beginning of all sin. It's believing that when it comes down to it, we can make it through. It's living as though it's all down to us. But also feel it, feeling as though it's all down to us. Now, the only other occurrence of this Greek word for, for arrogance in the New Testament is in, in 1 John. Let me read um, uh, chapter 2, verse 16 to you. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The pride of life. That really gets to grips with what this means by boasting in your, in your arrogance. The pride of life. Being so proud of how capable you are at stuff. How good you are at getting things done. One commentator renders this verse um, well. He says, uh, you could render it, you get a certain pride in yourself in planning your future with such confidence. And there's not a problem with planning your future. There's not even a problem with having some degree of confidence there. But it's the pride that that triggers in us that becomes the issue. That's what James is getting at here. The pride in yourself in planning your future with such confidence. Do you ever feel pretty made up because um, you've made it so far of all of the things you've achieved? Now, I don't want to belittle achievement, 
because you know we work hard and we, we get things. Like I said at the beginning, the making money is not the problem, actually. But how did you get there? If you got there in such a way that allows you to deny God's involvement, then perhaps you don't deserve to feel so good about it after all. But if you walked there hand in hand with God, then brilliant. What you've achieved is a testimony to his goodness and is something that can bring him glory. And then the final verse here, verse 17 doesn't really make a lot of sense it doesn't seem to kind of fit in with the narrative it just seems like a, a sort of a pithy saying that James has picked up and he's thought now's the time to put one in guys I'm going to slip one in just to remind you but we we must remember that um, sins of omission are just as deadly or important to avoid as sins of commission so sins of not doing are just as important as the sins of doing. In Matthew 18, um, there's the parable of the unforgiving servant. Do you remember that? So um, having been shown mercy and forgiveness, this servant goes to the, um, his, his Lord um, uh, and, and he begs forgiveness and says, you know, I, I can't afford to pay the debt. Please could you forgive me the debt? And the, 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 his, his Lord has mercy on him, forgives him the debt and says, don't, don't worry. It's cancelled. And the very next moment, the servant leaves and finds someone who's answerable to him, who owes him some money, and treats him entirely the opposite way. Says, no, no, you must give me the money. I'm going I'm to wring it out of you. Having been shown mercy and forgiveness, the servant knows the better way. He's been given the example. He's seen it. Now he is aware of what could happen. He knew it in a deep sense, more simply than just having heard that it was possible or knowing the concept. There is then no excuse for him to, do, uh, to, to not do likewise. So when he doesn't do likewise, he sees a terrible consequence. He's forced to repay the debt that he had previously forgiven and in fact he's tortured now it's a parable it's not a perfect parallel to real life again we know that god unlike the lord in this story um, doesn't go back on a promise so if god forgives you your debt you're forgiven that won't change but similarly to this parable we have no excuse not to practice what we know that i think is why james sticks this in here he puts it in as a reminder, as a sort of a saying, well, now you know, do something about it. Presumably, he's reminding this group of people, not because they've been doing it right this whole time, but because they haven't. And this is the final shot to remind them that there is an imperative to act here. Um, I have several Bible passages in here that... Um, I thought I might refer to, but I'm just going to go um, to John chapter 18. A couple of verses, 10 and 11. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, 
put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? This is another example of Peter, um, in this case, being presumptuous, doing what he sees is right without reference to God. And he feels like he's doing it for Jesus' glory and protection. But he didn't ask or apparently listen to what Jesus had been saying previously, and he got it wrong. He took action with reference only to himself. In Proverbs 16, um, there's a verse, verse 3. says, commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. And I lived with this verse for a long time and completely misunderstood it to begin with um, and used it uh, to essentially make good whatever plans I had. So all I need to do is tell God what I want to get done, and he'll make it happen. Commit to the Lord all that you do and your plans will succeed. But of course, that's not the thrust of it. What I did, the way I lived, in um, pursuing the career I pursued, in, in doing what I did for me and not for his glory, was living without reference to God. But ultimately, if you read the whole six-verse run in Proverbs 16 there, to humans begin belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the proper answer of the tongue. All a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. The Lord works out everything to, it, um, to, its, proper and even the wick, um, to its proper end, even the wicked for a day of disaster. The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Through love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for. Through the fear of the Lord, evil is avoided. Now, there's a good dose of judgment in there. But to humans belong the plans of the heart. Your deepest desires are not irrelevant to God, but they are probably about you more than about him. But from the Lord comes the proper answer of the tongue. A person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. So we bring our plans to God, and we don't ask him to rubber stamp them, but we involve him in them. And then that final verse that I read there, verse 6 of Proverbs 16. Through love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for. Now, I'm not suggesting that you need to work hard to have your atonement. But the thrust there is that actually the love of God, faithfulness to his word, that is how we get to where we need to get to, rather than by doing our own thing. The fear of the Lord is the way we avoid evil, living the way God asks us to, involving him in our journey. So I've managed to talk for a very long time on a very short passage. I'm always surprised by how much there is in a passage that's even just a few verses long. But in essence, it is still very simple. 
you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we'll live and do this or that. So where do you need to ask the Lord his will? Where is it in your life that you are doing your own thing? Where you're making your plans and you're feeling pretty good about the plans that you've made? And where instead do you need to turn those plans over to God, seek his face, whether it's fasting and praying or one of those five CSs? Where do you need to turn to God? Should we pray?